The scripture today is continuing in Exodus, and it's excerpts from um, Exodus 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City Church. We continue in a series we're doing this spring all the way up to Easter in this Old Testament book of Exodus. And we come to what is perhaps the most important chapter, Exodus 12, in the entire Bible. Now, I know that preachers like me are prone to overstatement, but let me say that is no overstatement. This is the living, breathing heart, not only of Judaism, but of Christianity, too. Uh, and you can see, big picture of the message here, there is judgment for sin, and there is mercy through a substitute. And that is, that is the living heart 
of the, the message of Christianity. So God tells Moses that he would come and kill the firstborn son of every family, even the animals in Egypt, unless a lamb was slain and the door frames of the house were painted with its blood. And God did it. And all the firstborn sons of Egypt were slain. But Israel was spared. And Pharaoh ultimately let them go. And so, you know, there's a, this is a heavy passage. Um, but in some ways, it's a very straightforward passage, which is helpful to me. Uh, because it makes my job a little easier this morning. But what I want you to see is that in Exodus 12, you see a judgment. But in the judgment of Exodus 12, we're actually given a picture of a greater judgment that's yet to come. We see also mercy, but in the mercy that we see here, we see, or we're hinted at, it's hinted at a greater mercy uh, that we know of because it's come in the Lord Jesus. And when you see that greater judgment, and when you see the greater mercy... Uh, that the gospel speaks of, it leads to a greater practice of our faith. And that really is what Moses is after here, is he wants uh, the practice of the faith through the generations in light of what God has done. Okay? And so a greater judgment, a greater mercy, and a greater practice of our faith from this text as we prepare to come to this table this morning. Well, let's just start then with how this judgment here points to a greater judgment, and let's talk about the destroyer. So the destroyer is coming. This is a sobering act. This is a sobering text. This is a sobering act of judgment. Verse 12 of chapter 12 uses that word. This is a judgment that's happening, okay? And we're left, many of us, to wonder how God could do such a thing. But I want to say that that says more about us than it does about God. Because as a general rule, people today dismiss the God of the Bible, or the God of the Old Testament at least, because they think that they must choose between a God who is only angry as it seems he is here, only angry and vengeful all the time, or they have to choose, you know, a God who is only loving and kind all the time. So listen to Richard Dawkins, for example, one of our preeminent atheists and and really uh, anti-Christians. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, megalomaniacal bully. Now, most people don't have the courage to say it like that, so kudos to him for that. But that is, that's what they believe. And largely because of stories like this one. And that is the challenge for us as modern people. It's the first crisis of the text But I want to say to you, it is not a new problem. We need to point that out. What's happening in our culture as we wrestle with can we even believe stories like this to be true is we're actually just revisiting ancient heresies. So this is not a modern problem, this problem with thinking of God in this way, of thinking could God really be a God of of justice and wrath like this. It's always been a problem from the very beginning of, of Christian history. You know, 2,000 years ago, the church has wrestled through this. And the truth is... You know, as we're, as, let's just get all of our cards out on the table this morning. The truth is that if we have problems with what we see God doing here, then we have really big problems because this, this story here in Exodus 12 about what God does to Egypt is actually child's play compared to the greater judgment that's coming. The scholars say that here in Exodus 12, we're getting a preview of the great day of judgment that's coming at the end of human history. And the Bible clearly teaches that there will be a great day of the Lord when God will bring the entire human race to judgment and he will repay every person according to their works. And the Bible also says that until that future day of 
wrath and judgment, God's anger is being stored up. It's being held in reserve. And what happens is, is every now and then, the cup of his wrath gets filled to the top, and it begins to pour out over the edges, and that's what you have happening here. That the end of time, judgment day, judgment came down ahead of time on these people as a picture for us of the great day of the Lord, which is still coming. And so it's a sobering act of judgment. But the other thing that we have to notice is that it really is a sobering act of justice. Because God's judgment is justice. What God does here is right. Justice means that God always is right in what he does, and he always does what is right. The Bible is very clear that the God that we claim that we serve is a God of justice, and it means that he always does right. What he always does is right, and he always does whatever is right. So this, is, this was not an overreaction. Uh, I know it feels like that. You can think, oh, man, what in the world? You know, but again, that says more about us if we think that way than it does about God because the Christian God is a God who is angry at sin because it is immoral to love what is evil. God is love, the Bible says. He is not wrath. So Martin Luther said that God's mercy is his day job. Judgment, judgment's a side gig. So that's my paraphrase, okay? So don't, that's my paraphrase. I doubt Luther used the word side gig. God is love. That's what the Bible says. He is love. He is not wrath, which means that his wrath and his judgment, like we see here, <coughs> excuse me, is an expression of his love, it, which means it's never capricious, it's never unpredictable, it's always, always rightly aimed at evil. And we have to admit that what the Egyptians have been doing to Israel for 400 years was evil. Slavery is evil in all forms. And God's justice is the expression of his hatred of that evil, which is good and loving. And so we're not meant to read the text and think that God is mean and hateful. God, you know, again, if we, if we do that, then we don't understand the concepts of oppression and justice. If God winks at the, the real evil in the world, what kind of God is that? What kind of world is that? We need God to be this way. He hates whatever destroys what he loves the most. And so even, if, even in this expression of his great heart, you know, we see, we see that this is, this is a good thing. It is an expression of his, of his great heart for the world. And so the lessons here are important for us, okay? So there's a bunch of them that come up from the text. The first is that God cannot just overlook sin. He cannot suspend the demands of his justice. God cannot see sin and, and not demand payment because we know every sin creates a debt. I mean, you know this from personal experience. When someone hurts or offends you, there is an emotional debt. There's something between you and the other person that can't just be wished away. There has to be a payment that's made. That's the only way you can get through the experience of that offense. And so there's a, there's a choice. Either you pay the debt yourself, and that's what we mean by forgiveness, that you pay the, the emotional debt, the cost of the other person's sins. You bear the cost. Or you make them pay by hurting them, by excluding them, by doing whatever you, know, you can to cause them the hurt that you're feeling. And that way, the payment gets paid down. But either way, the payment must be made. God cannot, God cannot forgive and redeem without payment. 
There's a payment that must be made. And the way this comes out in the text is with the idea, this idea of the firstborn, which really can be lost on us because there's such a cultural distance between uh, the people that, that first read these stories and, and those of us here, you know, 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years later or so. But if you look at chapter 11, verse 5, uh, we're told the Lord's going after the firstborn. So every firstborn son in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. Okay, so ancient people did not think like individuals the way we do. That's all over this text. The families were gathered together. The, they, they thought much more corporately than we do. So the only thing that mattered to them was the success and the prosperity of the family. Not individual success and in affluence and, and, you know, moving up the ladder. And so the family was all that mattered. And all of the hope for the family was tied up in the firstborn son. So all you firstborn sons, there you go. Pray for firstborn sons. There's lots of pressure there, even today. But what you have is, is in Exodus chapter 22 and Numbers 3, for example, God said, he legislated in his law that the life of every firstborn son belonged to him, which is very clear what he meant by that. It meant that the life of the firstborn son was forfeited to him unless it was redeemed. And so every year, one of the things that Israel had to do was they had to pay a redemption price for the firstborn of the family to the Lord. So they had, to, they had to pay a certain amount. They had to give, you know, a sacrifice. They had to, 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 to pay the price so that the firstborn son could be redeemed because it was an unmistakable message to these ancient people, though it's opaque to us, that there's a, there's a debt over every family. There's a sin debt owed to God, and the price must be paid. That God cannot, no matter how great his heart is, he cannot just overlook sin. And we need him to be a God who can't just overlook sin. But the other thing is, is that though he can't, suspend the demands of his justice we can't meet the demands of his justice notice that there that not just egypt but israel is under the threat of judgment here and so one of the things we have to see is that there are no good guys and bad guys here that's because sin is a universal condition and that means that there are no good guys god comes against all evil the evil he finds in our enemies which we're glad for but also the evil that we find in ourselves which we're much too quick to excuse and so Christians are spiritual egalitarians. That means that we believe that every person in the world is in the same spiritual condition. If you're a religious person, you're on no better ground than an irreligious person because no righteousness, no amount of going to church or reading the Bible or, doing any, or being kind to other people, no amount of righteousness that we perform on our own is enough. We cannot, we cannot meet the demands of God's justice on our own. I have a story uh, to kind of illustrate how this should feel. Uh, if you were around, uh, gosh, it's been 15 years now, but in 2003, three hurricanes hit Polk County within the span of just a month or so. And so my in-laws, they've done this twice now. We've told them if another hurricane comes, you're not allowed to evacuate to our home because every time you do, our home gets hit by the hurricane you're trying to avoid. My in-laws evacuated uh, for Charlie, and then, of course, if you remember, it changed directions and came in at Punta Gorda and then came right up the, the, the spine of the state. And so my brother-in-law, who's an arborist, and I, uh, as you do if you've been around in Florida for a long time, you know, we knew there was a tree in the back corner of my yard that was diseased, and he came, and, he, you know, this thing, this is going to be bad. And so we, before the hurricane came, we went to Lowe's, we tried to tie the thing down as best we can, but we knew, we knew it probably wasn't going to make it, and sure enough, Charlie was much worse than we thought, and 120-mile-an-hour winds put that tree straight through our roof and, and basically collapsed the back half of our house. 
with everybody evacuated from the coast. Isn't that great? It's awesome. So uh, in the days after, we got it off, and then we tarped the huge holes. Uh, but that's a little bit dis- disconcerting, isn't it, to think there's a piece of plastic that's you know, protecting my home and the places where this tree came through. But then, of course, it becomes even more disconcerting if you remember that just 10, ten days later, Francis came along. And just 10 days after that, Jean came, and I can still remember, <laughs> I can still remember that helpless feeling, knowing that my house had huge holes in it, and the storms were bearing down on it, and there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop it. And I want to say this story evokes similar feelings, which is why it's so hard, that there, we're told, there's a hurricane of judgment that is headed straight at us, and there's nothing we can do to avert it or to get out of the way. There's nowhere to hide. There's nothing to bargain with. So what do you do? Well, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that that, that right there is the moment that defines whether you're a Christian or not. Because if your solution is, you know what, i got to do something. i gotta, I got to do better. i got to clean my life up. He says, no, if that's the case, then you're not a Christian yet. Because that won't work. You have to know that you're like that tree in my yard. That you're weak and diseased and you don't stand a chance against the storm that's coming. And really, you have no choice but to cry out for mercy. And this text is a story of judgment, but it's also a story of mercy. It's a picture of a greater judgment, but also of a greater mercy than what we read about here. So let's talk about not just the destroyer for a minute, but let's talk about the lamb. And in many ways, you could say the Bible is the story of the lamb. Right? If we want to trace it through, we could see this in Genesis 22, which we are reading just now. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, the firstborn son again. And Abraham, you know, didn't balk at that because, again, that, that idea that there was a sin debt for the family, God was calling in the sin debt. And so just as Abraham, you know, if you remember the story, he's about to bring the knife down to slay his son. A voice stopped him, and he looked over into the, the thicket, and there was a lamb caught, and he took the lamb, and he offered the lamb up in the place of his son. And then, of course, the sacrificial system that on the same mountain where Abraham sacrificed the lamb and not his son, the Lord commanded that his temple be built so that the people could come and offer sacrifices for their sins. And so the blood there was not sprinkled on just the doorposts, but we read in Hebrews 8 and 9 that the the priest took the blood and he bathed the people in it. He sprinkled the people with it. It's a replaying of of this scene here. And then, of course, all the way to the end of the story in Revelation, we're introduced to this apocalyptic lamb who is conquered by being slain from the foundations before the foundations of the world. And so the solution to sin throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end, and Abraham and the sacrificial system here in this text, even in the New Testament, the, sim- the solution for sin is the lamb. So the symbol of salvation in the Bible is the lamb. And there's a principle that the solution to God's judgment is never moral reformation. It's not, you know, to get religion. The solution to God's judgment is always substitution. The people did not get out from underneath judgment because they were good. The text is very clear. They had to be marked by the blood of the lamb. The debt of sin is death, and the only payment is blood. And so the choice was there. They could die, or a substitute could die in their place. It would be their blood or the blood of the lamb, the blood of the firstborn or the blood of the lamb. And the Lord said, when I see the blood, if they took the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, he said, when I see the blood, 
I will know that satisfaction has been made and I will pass over you. This is chapter 12, verse 13. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. We're told there in chapter 11, verse 7, that the Lord is making a distinction between Egypt and Israel here. But what sets Israel apart from Egypt is not their cultural identity or their moral standards. It's the lamb. That's the only thing. And so if you're a Christian, the only difference between you and a person who doesn't believe, the only difference, there's, there's a major difference, but, there's, but, but it's really only one difference. The only difference between someone who believes and someone who doesn't believe is God's mercy. The only difference is the lamb. And so if you're a Christian, it's because a price has been paid, but by another, not by you. So John Stott famously said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and therefore the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And so the greater mercy, it says in the text, that the blood, verse, 12, verse 13, shall be a sign for you, that is a pointer to a greater mercy, to a greater sacrifice, not just a lamb, because ultimately the blood of lambs can't take away sin, but something else had to happen, a greater mercy. And so we come to the Gospel of John, and there John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ coming down the road, and do you remember what he cried out? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of lambs is no fair exchange for human life, but what about the blood of God himself? Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed on the cross as a substitute for our sin. Our sin has created a sin debt that we cannot pay. His blood is the payment. And so the firstborn sons of Israel were saved because God gave up his firstborn son to die in their place. Isaac was spared on the mountain because God walked up a mountain with his son and he laid the wood on him and the knife came down. And so we sing on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. And so now if Jesus did that for you, here's the good news. If you're here and you believe in that, your whole life and hope is aimed at that reality that God is a God of mercy in providing the lamb for you, then that means that God's justice works in an opposite direction. It works for you now and not against you. Isn't that great? That justice is now not something to be afraid of. Justice is something to hang your hopes on because justice now that the price has been paid demands that you be forgiven. So Augustus Toplady wrote a hymn that says it better than I can, and so I just wanted to include it. But here, listen to these words. He says, from whence this fear and unbelief. So he's trying to solve the problem of he's a Christian, but he's still just so full of afraid, so full of fear, and so full of unbelief and, and unsure of God's love for him. He says, from whence, this is what he's arguing, okay? He's arguing with his heart of, you shouldn't be that way. You, you know, there's something else that's yours. He says, from whence this fear and unbelief hast thou, O Father, put to grief thy spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid what e'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine payment, God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Isn't that great? Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. 
The merits of thy great high priest speaks peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God since Jesus died for thee. Now that, that can't help but leave you changed. I mean, you, right? I mean, that can't help but leave you changed. And remember, the Israelites were not just being freed from serving as slaves in Egypt. They were being freed towards serving the God that I just spoke of. Their old life was coming to an end and something whole, a whole new thing was, being, was, being, was starting. And so the new thing that they were now moving into was nothing like the old thing. And so if you're a Christian, see, if you're a Christian, you were dead and now you're alive. You were chained in the wall, on the wall in the dungeon of darkness, and now you're f- freed in, to live in the kingdom of, of the beloved son. There's an old life that has come to an end, and there's a new life that you've begun that you're living that is nothing like the old life that you once had. That's what the Bible says. And so what you see, what, what we miss, I think, because just the power of the story that we've already told, what we miss is that the majority of Exodus chapter 12 was given to explain that difference. That their whole life now was to be reordered around God's rescue. And so even in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, uh, what's going to happen now this month, right, right where we are right now, this month for you shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the, of the year for you. So he's saying what God's about to do is going to completely reorder the way you live your lives. And so the remembrance of the Passover would begin the year every year for them from then on because it was a remembrance to them that everything else flows from what God has done to save them. Everything was going to be different, even more for us, because in saving us, God has come in He's come to give us new hearts and new emotional, psychological resources for obedience. And so you see there's this massive change. You see the story and the supper. So the first thing, if you experience something like this, and remember, if you're a Christian, you've, <laughs> if you're a Christian, you've experienced something far greater than even what we see happening here. You've experienced it on a cosmic level. And that means that you have a story to tell. And your whole life is re-narrated. You go the rest of your life telling the new story, not the story of slavery and hardship. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, your story is not a story of slavery and hardship. It's a story of rescue and hope because God is a God of rescue and hope. And so if you've been saved, it's not due to what you've done, but what's been done for you and in you and now through you. And that means every single one of us, we have a story. Christianity is gospel. It's Good news, and so if you're a Christian, if your life has been reordered by God's rescue, then you now are going to go through life telling the story everywhere, all the time, to anyone who will listen, but especially to the next generation. And that's where the text aims is. Did you notice that? It says down at the very end of chapter 12, when the children say to you, what's this? Tell them the story. Here are the facts. 80% of our city is unbelieving. The statistics say that 90% of the 75 kids or so, well, they won't, 50 kids or so, so over there, and all of the rest of the children in here and the teenagers in here today, 90% of them will leave the faith by the second year of college. We have a story to tell. We have to tell the story. We have to indoctrinate them into the story. I'm not afraid of that word. They need to know the story. It's a great story. It's the best story. It's the only story that makes sense of life. And we need to tell it to them, tell it everywhere, to anyone, to anyone who will listen, but especially to the next generation, And which is why what happens over there, if you serve over can I just say, if you serve over there, 
thank you, do you go into those things as if life and death hang in the balance? Every Sunday. Well, and if you want to pass the faith on to the next generation, tell the story. But then there's another thing, and the last thing that I would say here is the other thing that this points us towards is if we want to pass the faith on to the next generation, then we need to institutionalize our remembrance. The, the root of all sin, if you go wrong, if your life starts to go sideways, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that somewhere in there is gospel forgetfulness. What's happening is you're forgetting the reality of God's rescue. You're, you're, you're believing something to be true of him other than the fact that he's a God of rescue and mercy and hope. And you have to bring your heart back in line with the truth of the story that he is, in fact, all of those things. And that's what Exodus 12 is really about. It tells the story of the Passover, of course, but most of the content, if you read carefully in Exodus 12, is instructions, and there's so much detail, right? I mean, there's just all of these details about how Israel was to remember through the generations this event through a yearly celebration. So rituals and traditions and habits, that's how the faith survives from one generation to the next. But I'm, I'm struck, I'm struck that in thinking about all of those rituals and habits, that the center of the faith for both Judaism and Christianity is a meal, For the Jews, it was this annual feast. For Christians, it's this meal, the Lord's Supper, which Jesus replaced the Passover with on the night he was crucified. Now, just think about that for a minute. If your community group meets today, talk about this because this is a big deal. The center of our faith is a meal. And so this room can give the wrong impression. We're not gathered in a lecture hall. We're gathered today around a table because we're family. And because above all, I think what that communicates is God desires to eat with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have you over for dinner. All of this, he did all of this so that he could have you over for dinner. And so how do you come to this table then in light of that, right? I mean, what, what in the world? How, so how we celebrate this is a really big deal. How do you come to this table? Well, on the one hand, I think there should be a profound sense of earnest humility and reverence and wonder. I mean, isn't that where the text leaves you? Somewhat stunned. You know what I mean? You read this and you think, I don't, wow, okay. Speechless and stunned. But on the other hand, you come with joy and celebration and amazement. Because think about this. As the destroyer made his way through Egypt, what were the Israelites doing? They were feasting because they were safe under the blood. And if your faith is in Christ, you are too. You're far more secure. It says that they were so safe that not even a dog growled at them. And if your faith is in Jesus, you're far more secure. You're far more, you're far, you can be far more confident of God's love for you. There is no destroyer coming for you. That's my good news this morning. There is no more judgment. There is only mercy. Everything is mercy. Jesus took the judgment. So come, feast, rejoice, smile, skip if you want to. I thought you would chuckle at that. That would, be, that would bless my heart. Don't really do that. That would be weird. But well, if you want to, whatever. Come on, come. But this is not a dour moment. Do you understand what I mean? Like this is, this is, this is, this is, um, it's stunning and there's reverence and there's wonder, but it's not a dour moment. We are people who've been redeemed. Amen. Our story is a story of rescue, which is why we gather around this meal.
to tell to one another, we proclaim the Lord's death, we're told, as we do this, until he comes again. And so would you pray with me that he would prepare our hearts for just that. So, Father, as we gather now around your table, would you come? Uh, our hearts can be hard and, are, and slow to believe. Would you not let that be so? And where we still are in the throes of unbelief, as the hymn writer said, from whence this fear and unbelief, would you come and work by the power of your spirit in our hearts to encourage us and to replace our fear with faith that you might unloose our tongues, that we might become those who boldly proclaim the story of the rescue to all who would listen, but especially to the next generation, that you might continue to build your church, that the gates of hell might not prevail against it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me and now receive these words? They are the promise that because the lamb was slain for you, because the father's hand of justice was raised against his son, now his hand of blessing, I can raise my hands as a sign of his hand of blessing raised over your life. Uh, go with these words on your heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.